Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. I have to confess before we begin that today as we end our series, which I'll talk about in a second, this vision series, I tried to get out of teaching on community for weeks and weeks. Um, Namely, I think there are people in this community who carry it differently than I do, and I wanted to see that. But honestly, more, I would say that this has been the worst and loneliest year for me. Um, And I just didn't feel like I had the integrity to say I've lived this out the way that I've wanted to. And I'll talk about that in, um, in a little bit. But I also felt as I was praying and as I was discerning what that meant, I just felt like maybe that was the place I needed to come from. Uh, And yes, I want to sound smart and I want to preach well, but I want to begin with that sense that uh, we all carry the pains of community into community. And I'll talk specifically why culturally I think that's hard, Um, but, and some of you have heard this before, but I want to begin with this quote from Mother Teresa, which has been quoted probably a million times, but it says something, even though she said this decades ago, that the greatest disease in the West today is not tuberculosis or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. We can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. There are many in the world who are dying for a piece of bread, but there are many more dying for a little love. The poverty in the West is a different kind of poverty. It is only a poverty of loneliness. It is not only a poverty of loneliness, but also of spirituality. There's a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. And I just wanna speak that without idealism today because to talk about community is to talk about the bleak reality of loneliness that we live in. So as we finish this series, this vision series on what does it mean to be Garden Church, I don't want to begin on this downer and then take us nowhere. I just want to be honest about where we're at, where I'm at. And not just, oh, I've overcome this and I've done this in the past, but in this present moment, this has been painful reality for me in the last year. So if, if that's you, I just want to welcome you and say this is a place where you can share that, where you don't have to live under the burden of being anything you can walk into this room, you can find friends, take people to lunch, and be welcomed for whatever you carry into this place. It may cost you vulnerability, but it may cost you a little bit of that trust, but you're welcome here. So Jesus, would you be with me as these words um, are words I need to hear? Would you be with this church, this amazing community, the men and women, and the children, and the youth that are on this campus, God. We ask that your spirit would be with us. We ask that you would be here in the word, you would hear in everything that is spoken and said, and things unsaid that you are saying to people here. God, would you just have good soil this morning? (laughs) Can I just, I just want to wait a minute. Would you just wait with me? more than just hearing from my voice today, I want you to hear from the risen Lord. And he's speaking to you right now in places uh, my words could never carry. Jesus, would you just do that? Would you just begin this time as you lead with your voice now? 
Amen. Amen. Thanks for humoring me. Grateful to be with you. Uh, I love getting to teach. I love getting to be in this community. It's been such a gift. Um, We have been in this vision series, a short four-week series that we've been using this line. It's kind of like a mission statement. If you want to put it up, it'll be familiar. Now, we've been speaking this over our church, but not in an idealistic declaration way. This is a hopeful calling, a sense of this is who we long to become. And so we are one family living the way of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing life wherever we go. And so far we've talked about living the way of Jesus, being formed into the image of Christ, learning to live and walk in obedience and love, and living in such a way that each passing year we more naturally do next year what seems impossible today, to follow in the way of Jesus as second nature. We've talked about being a people of God's presence, people who are abundantly filled, constantly connected, and in personal relationship with the Holy Spirit, where the fruit of the Spirit are growing in us and mark us, and the power of the Spirit flows through us, and therefore we're useful wherever we go for the sake of the kingdom. And we bring life. We bring life because people who the natural outflowing of who we are in God's presence and in our presence in the world brings healing and transformation. I was thinking about this. If we're connected to the source of life, then life is the natural byproduct wherever we should go, right? If my extension cord is plugged into the wall, then there is power that comes to my iPhone charger or whatever it is I'm connected to. And if we're plugged into the source of life, then life should naturally be the outflow of relationship, of calling, of vocation, of everything we bump into in this world. And it should just be like little seeds scattered and life pops up. But then we come to our final theme today, this theme of community. And in a lot of ways, I think we should have started here because I think that any of those statements that we've already covered, living the way of Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, bringing life wherever we go, they are impossible apart from a committed community of Jesus followers. And to think that it's possible is to misread the entire New Testament with our individualist mindset and to project that onto this different world of the New Testament. See, the world of the New Testament, it was completely different oriented than we are. They're what we call the collectivist culture, which means the group took priority over the individual. The person perceives their primary responsibility as being submitted to the group. Can you imagine living like that nowadays? where it's a you-do-you culture, where even families are divided by whatever's best, whatever thing you want to do. There's not a singular vision for what family life could be like, and we're split. Sociologists call this a strong group mentality. We take that for granted. We take for granted that they would have to strive to live to be in community. They just assume that's what it was. We live in an individualist culture where a person perceives that they are unique and responsible for their own life and destiny as it is, we are set above as individuals above the group. And this is tough for us because we we tend to read our individualist perspective onto everything we read in the New Testament. And a good rule of thumb is every time you read something in the New Testament and you read the word you, just replace it with the word y'all. Or just a plural you, if that's too Southern for you. Um, which it might be. But it's hard. It makes reading the New Testament so much about me. Every time we hear the word you, we go, oh, that's me. He's talking about me. Great. Thanks, Paul. He's like, no, no, no. Every time he's talking about a committed group of followers of Jesus who are fighting to be one. 
So every time we, we, we mistake that, oh, the church, that's about my spiritual experience, not about my commitment to what this group, this bride is becoming. This is why Paul spends the first three chapters of Ephesians laying out this great vision of what the new community of God, he spends almost four chapters painting this picture of what it means for Christ to have conquered death, to have conquered the principalities and powers, to create a community that might be exalted and unified, where Gentiles and Jews become one, where people who hated each other might have family. And he ends this beautiful section where he transitions into very practicals. Husbands, how do you love your wives? Wives, how do you love your husbands? How do you be a parent? How do you be a child? All these different economic and social experiences he begins, and well, he puts this little fulcrum point in the middle of, of Ephesians 3, and I just want to read it. It's a long text. You're going to have to be with, bear with me, but it's worth it. I honestly thought this morning I would just read the book of Ephesians aloud, because it's probably 30 minutes by itself, and it genuinely is one of the most beautiful. It's the only book where Paul isn't writing a letter to a church because they're having problems. So he gets to go, oh my gosh, not that they're perfect. But he's, he gets to go, remember all this stuff, this huge vision of what it means to be the child of God, brothers and sisters. This is how you live it out practically. It's the best theology of the church. If you want to just read it, it literally only takes 30 minutes. But I'm going to read a, a chunk of it. Would you bear with me? For this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name. I pray that out of this glorious riches, he may strengthen you with the power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints, all the Lord's people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. Bill pointed this out to me years ago. Notice what he's painting. How high, how long, how wide, and how deep is the love of Christ. He's drawing a cross with his words. Remember that. And also to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to know him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all the generations forever and ever. Do you hear that? It is the glory of God that the church be his family. As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. In light of all of that, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace has been given as Christ's apportionment. Why is it that he says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people? What does he ascended mean, except for that he also descended lower earthly regions? He who descended in the is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. There is no place you can't go where he won't be with you. 
So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service to equip. So those, those callings are, to do the, are not to do the work of the church. They're to empower the church to do the work of the church. As I was trained in school, if you are called to vocational ministry or this is one of your lifelong callings, then your role is a step back from vocational ministry. You are the ministers. The teachers, the prophets, the evangelists, great. All they do is equip. The life and body of the church is in the people who are baristas and engineers and teachers and stay-at-home moms. That's where the work, why else would he use the word body? It's God's action in the world. We're the body of Christ. His action in the world is through us. And if you think it happens just in this room, then we're obviously missing something. That's a whole different sermon, and I'm sorry. This is, this is so good, though. Until, so Christ himself gave all the, okay, to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. And then this right here. Then we will no longer be infants becoming the men and women of the community of God leads to maturity. Not how many verses you know, not how many practices you do. Have you persisted through to become the community of God? Not you, me, right? You, y'all, us. Remember the confession that I began with. There, then we will be no longer infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. A community can't be led astray because their mutual affection abounds. It pushes against Gnosticism. It pushes against outside teachers. It pushes against all the things that seek to divide. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Thanks be to God. We were made for this. The myth of individualism, the myth that we can go in alone is a myth that has led to nothing but isolation and loneliness. It's a myth that has ruined the church in the West. There are whole parts of the world where this isn't the case. There's a strong group that understand this commitment is more important than anything else that I will pursue. We almost have no clue how to begin to think about that. But it's what we were made for, this biblical vision of community, and it's wired into us then why is it so difficult to press in to meaningful relationships, whether the, whether, weathering the conflict and pain and disappointment to create a community and find a place where we belong? Why is it that we can get swept up in the joyous longing and the idealism of community for a short time? And then after riding that high, we bump into the dreadful reality of other people. Or as Dostoevsky says in one of his novels, he says it in Brothers Karamazov, he says, the more that I love humanity, the less I love man. Right? I resonate that. I love people. But it works the other way, right? We can say God is love, but I don't have to love my neighbor. Love and transformation happen in the particularities. They happen in specificity. 
you can't say that you love and not love the person sitting right here. It doesn't work that way. You can't go from the greater to the smaller. You almost always have to go from what's right in front of you. That's why we need each other. But at the heart level, we know this, that we cannot flourish without healthy relationships and trusting community. But then our hesitation emerges, our disappointment and pain teaches us to be resistant, to withhold, to just hedge our bets, to have a few communities at any point we could dip into, a few places that we're, quote, committed. So we live at arm's length, always around but never really let in, never letting our roots settle so we can always pick up whenever we feel the slightest disagreement or discomfort. Anyone feel that? Anyone live that? Anyone have a church experience in the past or maybe now that that's it? That's it? There's a fear and anxiety of choosing the wrong people, the wrong crowd, the wrong church. Eric Kleinenberg wrote this amazing book on how we're moving from, uh, we're moving back to the cities and there is a growing population of people who are choosing to live alone even in expensive cities. And he has this painfully, painfully good line. He says, there is nothing lonelier than living with the wrong person. I read that quote to my wife last night, and she said, yep. <laughs> Which she didn't mean it, I hope. Um, I don't think she did. <laughs> but there is a loneliness of being in relationship with people who do not have your best interests at heart. Or a shared aim. How many of you have friends? I mean, I feel this as I've gotten older. I've realized even people I have great history with who I love, who are Christians, but our way of expressing it in the life, the things that we want are different. And I feel like, ah, we're on these paths that kind of feel like this. And I love them, but it's harder and harder and harder when you have two different visions for what life looks like. And it's more than just uncertainty or fear. It's, it's also about the, our actual capacity to create healthy relationships. We don't have the capacity anymore for community. It's lessons from a generation long past. And there are a few people in this room probably who can tell us the difference in their experience of life, family, culture, friendships, marriage, and church because of their decades of experience and how different. Yes, there are amazing things. And I don't want to be a Luddite. I don't want to be a, someone who's reading with rose-colored lenses on the problems of the past. I'm not saying that. I'm saying there are things that we have, we have lost, though. Why am I saying this? Because we have a, we have a problem with models, Right? One of the inescapable truths of human life is that we live at the mercy of our ideas, as Dallas Willard says. But I think that doesn't go far enough. We live at the mercy of what we think is possible. We live at the mercy of our models for viewing the world. And if we don't have a vision for something, then we just can't dream of it. We need a model as human beings to show us that there's another way. And we've seen this a thousand times. This is how every good story comes to us. Think about all the movies that we've watched, all the novels we read where the hero of the story is stuck, right? You meet them at the beginning of the story and they're stuck. But then a guide for Luke, it's Obi-Wan. For Frodo, it's Gandalf, comes to them and said, there's another way. There's a bigger story. There's a bigger you. There's a big bigger vision for life than you could possibly imagine. And he leads them down a path to get it, and it will cost them. For Luke, he has to deal with his hatred. And if you don't like Lord of the Rings or Star Wars, I'm sorry, those are my two examples today. 
For Luke, he has to deal with his hatred. Can he conquer that inner demon? For Frodo, it's the power, the wrestling of the, of the ring. And I love that first book that's called The Fellowship of the Ring. The only thing capable of carrying the burden of this power is fellowship. That alone is a lesson for the church. I had a professor in college who said that for Tolkien, the, the ring was the power of, and sin. But it, it only required a fellowship to hold it. And if there's fellowship, it's easy. But as soon as it was placed on one person, it was unbearable and it would turn them into something less than human, right? That's a theology of Lord of the Rings that I can't get into. <laughs> but we've seen it a thousand times. If they can beat their inner demons, then, then the external demons can be beat as well. Sauron, Vader, whoever, the emperor, Palpatine. But we need models and guides. That's why humans tell stories. We need a vision for something that isn't attainable on our own in our current state, but there is a way, and I'm saying this because we have a model problem. In our world of individualism, which is liberating in many ways, we are free to be as we wish and live as we choose. We can do things previous generation could hardly dream of, and thank God for that. Hear me again. The freedom that we have, people have been liberated. Amen. But what they found simple, we found extremely hard. Getting married, staying married, being a part of a community, having a strong sense of identity, having a sense of continuity with the past before you were born and continuity with the future that will be here after we're gone. That was taken for granted in previous periods because of strong ties. We don't have anyone to show us how to do it. We live in a generation void of it. So we rely on fiction. And frankly, our fictional models, outside the ones written 70, 80 years ago, are bad. Think about the most popular show of the last 30 years is the show Friends. <laughs> right? And I was in college. No, it came out when I was in high school and junior high. But it was the biggest thing in college. And then I came to Netflix, and oh my gosh, every person is rewatching. I remember having like 17-year-olds when I worked at a university saying like, have you ever heard of the show Friends? I'm like, yes, I've heard of the show Friends. It was the biggest thing. But think about this. It's a group of people who spend their time encouraging one another's complaints and vices, making dramatic plot lines out of easily reconcilable things. If they just showed a little reflection humility, and mature conversation. Now, I understand that would be a very boring show. <laughs> except, except think about a show like Ted Lasso. Relationally genius, emotionally healthy. Sure, it's got its issues. But there's a hunger in us for something that looks different. But friends was what we thought friendship should look like. Coffee shop, complaints, even mutual dating. What the heck? That's what I grew up on. That was the social story that I was told. Friends is not about good relationships. Friends is a cautionary tale. But honestly, we don't have to look outside of our own families. It is. Watch it again. Cringe. There should be like a, you have to be 30 before you can watch this show. Don't figure, don't watch this while you're trying to develop deep, meaningful relationships. We don't have to look outside of our family to see how bad our models are. We're surrounded by a generation and generations of men and women who the majority of our families were divorced. Most of us don't know what it's like to see a family that when the going gets tough, the intentional fight for intimacy and connection actually wins. What we have seen 
in a majority of our home is that when the going gets tough, the family dissolves. People opt out. And I know there are some situations where that's the best possible outcome, and I believe that. I've advised that. But most of the time, there's usually something that's avoidable, very often at least. No wonder we feel alone. No wonder there's a loneliness epidemic. In fact, when I was 15, my parents divorced. They sat us down. They told us that they were going to be separated and then divorced. And in a few minutes, my whole world was flipped on its head. I had nowhere to go. I was the youngest of three boys. I couldn't drive. My brothers could drive. They drove to their friends. And I found myself sitting in my house absolutely alone, watching the world I thought I had crumble around me. And I would have given anything to, to disappear. So I went to one of my childhood safe havens. I've always been known to be a climber. I climbed, at 15 years old, I climbed a tree because I had no place to go. And I felt alone. I sat there crying, cursing, yelling at God, yelling at my parents, totally alone. And that moment accelerated a lifelong avoidance of my own loneliness. That if I could just be useful enough needed enough, helpful enough that I would never have to be abandoned again. If people need you, they can't leave you. So I got good at being needed. I'm great at being needed. I want to be wanted. I want someone to want to be around me, not need to, you know? Any Enneagram 2 in the room is like, yep. <laughs> there's, a, there's an altar call for the twos. <laughs> The codependent types. I don't want to just make this about me. But I'm grateful that by God's grace and the years of reconciliation and remaining in hard relationships, there is healing in my family. I can't imagine my kids not knowing my stepmom. Now they get grandma, they get nana, they get my mother-in-law. And it was agony but man, I'm so grateful for it now. Not saying it was God's plan, not saying it was the best, but man, when you remain and do work, I'm so grateful for the healing that's possible. This is also, like I said, a current reality for me. I'm coming up to my birthday and every year I have this reflection time and I had this realization that this last year has been one of the loneliest years of my life. We came to the garden back on staff after having been, been gone for almost 10 years um, and we were there when we planted, and then my wife and I moved. And I have amazing and deep friendships scattered all across the world, but I don't have a community. Coming to a church in the middle of a pandemic can be lonely. And not, this isn't on anyone here. I'm not saying it like that, like you didn't do something for me. I'm saying I've realized I'm good at deep relationships and friendships, but I'm bad at committing to this single community, a single community. And so much of it has been self-protection. Hmm. I just want to sit there for a sec. I just feel like... Hmm. Please just close your eyes for a second. I just got this image of just like a little girl, like I have a little girl and I have a little boy, and I just had this image of this little girl just like reaching her hands up, longing to be picked up, and just no one picking her up. And I don't know what that's about. 
I just want to honor that. If that's you, if that's a feeling you have or that's a memory that you have, would you just raise your hand? Everyone's eyes closed. Would you raise your hand? I just want to pray. Oh, man. God, I pray that 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 story would stop. God, I pray that you would, in your goodness and kindness, you would meet those little children where they're at and that you would pick them up and hold them dear and speak the love you have for them. God, that at the garden, that wouldn't be a story of a single child or a single adult because we've so surrounded them with the love of community that they couldn't imagine what being alone. Not good alone to being lonely, though, God. Would you meet them now? Would you meet them right now? Would you heal that memory? Even in their imagination by your spirit, God, would you just enter that story that they tell? And would you pick them up and just hold them near? Hmm. Amen. Thank you. Um, man, that story is too common. What would it be like if Garden Church was a place where that story went to die and be resurrected into new life, into new community? Hmm. I think we insert into that, into our own emotional stories, our painful stories, we insert into that a community-starved generation, all of the costs of social media, and we think it might get better to connect, and it actually just gets worse and worse and worse, like drinking salt water. It satisfies the, the tongue for just a second, and then it just makes it worse and worse and worse. In his book, A Time to Build, Yuval Levin, he explores how social media has undermined our social lives, and he says that social, this, oh, this quote, you can just check, check, check as he lists these things. Social media plainly encourages the vices most dangerous to free society and to community. They drive us to speak without listening, to approach others confrontationally rather than graciously, to spread conspiracies and rumors. This was written before the pandemic. <laughs> to dismiss and ignore what we would rather not hear to make the private public, to oversimplify a complex world, to react to one another much too quickly and curtly. They eat away at our capacity for patient toleration, our decorum, our forbearance, which is another way of saying bear with one another, and our restraint. These, friends, are crowd behaviors, not community behaviors. You see, a crowd is about convenience. It's just who's around you. It's about interest. What we happen to like, it's about experience. What I can get out of this. And in a family-starved generation, of course that's where we go to. It costs us so little. But we can have great experiences. For some, this is what a church experience is really about. A crowd experience, not a community one. We're comfortable with crowds. They're way easier and they cost us so less. We also know a lot about tribalism, the other replacement for community. This is a quote from David Brooks, who I think is a cultural prophet. 
He's actually written his journey to Christ, to faith, through years of being a New York Times columnist. He's become, from a secular Jew, grown up in a Jewish home, to a follower of Jesus. And you can go back and track this development, but he says this about tribalism. Tribalism seems like a way to restore the bonds of community. Remember, we're thirsty and we're just drinking salt water. It certainly does bind people together, but it actually is the dark twin of community. That's a great line. Community is connection based on mutual affection. Tribalism is connection based on mutual hatred. Do we see that anywhere in our culture? Community is based on common humanity. Tribalism on common foe. Tribalism is always erecting boundaries and creating friend-enemy distinctions. The tribal mentality is a warrior mentality based on scarcity. Life is a battle for scarce resources, and it's always us versus them, zero sum. The ends justify the means. Politics is war. Ideas are combat. It's kill or be killed. Mistrust is the tribalist worldview. Tribalism is community for lonely narcissists. Whew, cultural prophet, man. And if we're comfortable in tribalism, what does that say about us? If we're more comfortable in the homes of our tribes, our echo chambers online, or just the people who look the way we think, look the way we look, think the way we think, what does that say about us? Am I really a lonely narcissist? Or am I grasping this vision for transformative community that Paul? I say all that. Because we've been failed. We've been failed by our experience, our models, our technology, our cultural ideals. We are created to long for community, but we've been forced to settle for tribes or crowds. And then we just use the name community. Our ideals keep expanding, but our longings are never satisfied. And we bring all of this into our discipleship, into the church. Our ideals as high as can be, but our capacity for community and the tools to make them as low as they've ever been. See, community in contrast is about shared love. Sharing a love that persists through waning interests and passion and dislike. Community is about commitment, a promise to become something our fullest and whole selves together. And friends, this is not about shared love as an ideal, a dream. This is about real love, messy and incomplete with names and faces and quirks and annoyances, things that we can't stand and things that we love. That's what community, that's why Paul says, struggle, endeavor, forbear, bear with one another, that on the other side of that is actual life. Commitment is the only answer for becoming a community that looks different. This is why there is no such thing as a casual community. A casual crowd, yes, but a casual community, no. A casual community is as much a myth, it's as much a lie as casual sex. Both, let me say that again, casual community is as much a myth as casual sex. Both momentarily mask the pain of loneliness with the chemicals of oxytocin and dopamine. But never, neither of them last long enough to fill the void or create something truly meaningful to meet the insatiable longing to know and be known and to truly be at home. Each of them have the illusion of intimacy and attachment, but they leave you more desperate for meaningful connection. In the end, like all idols, they cost you more than they could ever give you. You cannot build, we cannot build community with the tools of a crowd 
or the tools of a tribe. You can't make a community by being a group. You make a community by building something together, by becoming something together, and that takes promise and commitment. (laughs) Something bigger than yourself is created, something that carries a story bigger than you. It includes your story. The gospel is the only story that can include and honor your story and also put it into a bigger picture. It's the only narrative that'll do that where you become more clean. (laughs) In the Old Testament, they constantly compare Pharaoh and Yahweh. Tangent. Yahweh is the only king that when you make him first, you get to be second. The struggle of the Israelites is every time they make themselves first, they lose themselves and they lose Yahweh. They lose intimacy with themselves, with their friends, with their brothers and sisters, and they lose intimacy with Yahweh. First things first. It has been said that the church is the only institution that exists primarily for the benefit of those who are not its members. So the call today is to lay down the right we feel to let our past or unmet ideals keep us from becoming what we were made to be as his family. I'm sure as I've been talking, there's been some checks. You've been going, yes, that's my story. That's, yep, that's me right now. That's my past. That's my fear. That's my anxiety that has kept me at arm's length. Today is a chance to lay that down. And Paul's words, then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, the ways of culture, the ways of entertainment, the ways of our peers who we don't agree with, but we still are peers with them for some reason. Sorry, speaking to myself. And blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. Jesus spent three years of his public ministry preaching the good news, of the kingdom of God, healing the sick, casting out demons. And in that time, he didn't write a treatise. He didn't write anything that we know of, except for some words in the sand and one story in the Gospels. So we know he could write. We know he could read. But he didn't write a treatise. Hmm. Sorry, I just lost my place on that tangent. He didn't set up a school or an institution Not that either of those are inherently bad. I love education. It's got to be something that Christians fight for because we've always fought for education. We were the first ones to teach people to read. The first social reading group was the church so that they could study the words of Torah, the words of Jesus, right? The first hospitals. That's right, universities throughout the world. The Jesuits have founded more than any other people, I think. He didn't set up a school or institution, not that either are bad. He didn't leave a manual like a car operation guide to take a sinner to be a saint. He left a community. He trusted his friends to preach through their hospitality. He breathed his spirit upon them and said, make other disciples, immersing them in my relationship with you. Immerse them in the relational reality of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. And in your hospitality, they will come to know me. And then when he marked his ministry with a symbol, he gave them a meal, a meal to be shared with his brothers and sisters from all nations and all tongues, a meal that reminded and washed people in the love of God through his radical hospitality. Jesus' plan for the renewal of the world 
is a committed community of his friends growing in friendship together, his church. So in light of all that, and just in the last few minutes of closing, the thing that will get in the way in light of all of this is the temptation to go after the idols of culture that look like tribes and crowds instead of persevering into what it means to be a biblical community, a community of friendship, of mutual affection, of love, dare I say love, where we might be known and know, where we can entrust ourselves fully. So these are six, I think, common idols of culture that if we can persevere to the other side of them, we might find what real community looks like. The first one is we must learn to move from loose affiliations based on personal interest to covenantal commitment. A contract is about interest. A commitment is about identity. It is about you and me coming together to form an us. This is why contracts benefit, but covenants transform. When you say, I will be here every week at 8 o'clock, and you can count on me, and every week I text at 7.30 hey, I got plans, hey, something came up, hey, this is this, or every time I need you, you say, oh, I'm sorry, I got something else. No shame in this. This is a chance to start over for our community. I'm a chronic overcommitter. Thankfully, my wife is the opposite, so we meet in the middle and we're learning together. A commitment isn't just love and promise. It is love and promise brought under law. In living a commitment, each party understands the fickleness of feeling, so they bind their future selves to specific obligations. These are words I read at a wedding every time I marry someone. Spouses love each other, but they bind themselves down with legal, public, and often religious marriage commitment to limit their future choices for those times when they get on each other's nerves. I'm not saying we're getting married, but I'm saying there's a commitment needed. Number two, And I'll blaze through these, I promise. We move from curated public transparency, right? Anyone recognize those? To radical and loving vulnerability. To be vulnerable is to share something deep and even painful and to trust the other people will respond with care. I can stand up here and talk about the struggles I have, which I've done a little bit today. That's really transparency. Vulnerability is when I say it and trust that you'll reach out and respond to take care of me in my pain. You can't be vulnerable online. You can be transparent. Now, not everyone deserves your vulnerability. Absolutely not. But someone must be trusted with it. Number three, we move from cynicism, gossip, and shaming. Online, anyone? to cherishing and edification. What if every time we walked out of a conversation, whoever we talked about was somehow seemed to be bigger and more loving, maybe than they really are. Instead of just complaining, we started edifying. Every time we walk out of a conversation, someone is uplifted. It doesn't mean we don't have conflict. It doesn't mean we don't have hard conversations, but cynicism says you're always gonna be what you've always been. And love says there's gold in you. That sinner that you keep telling yourself you are, that bad with relationships, that whatever fill in the blank, that's not going to define you. We're going to make sure it doesn't. We're going to give you a new name. You are a saint. Live as a saint. Put to death that old way of being. 
Four, we move from idealism to who we wish, sorry, we move from idealism, who we wish was next to us, everyone look around, (laughs) to realism, who is right next to us. Who is my brother and sister, whoever shows up for this communion table and seeks to live out the way of Jesus together? You might find, you may find that you have more Franklin people, Franklin neighborhood and in this church at at your holiday table than you do people who share your DNA. That's the reality of this kind of gospel. That's the reality of this community. There's got to be hierarchy. There's got to be, you have to learn to choose who you're supposed to choose. First things first. Five, we move from publicly confrontational, which is shame-oriented, to personally accountable, which is honor. We stay current. We share our hurts in real time. We don't let things build up. We don't let the sand get into the gears that keeps community from actually flowing and and running well. But we do so in love, not in power or control or jealousy, not to diminish someone or to take them to task, but to enlarge them. What if every conflict led to an enlarged relationship and an enlarged church? Every chance to be confronted in love actually led to laughter and joy. This also means keeping your word. This also means we stay, we embrace the pain, and we grow up with one another. Those who stay will grow. And when you choose to leave in light of all the things we've talked about, not just the church, when you choose to leave whatever that community is, you just repeat that cycle in another place. The chronic church hoppers causing the same issues, right? The chronic job hoppers who cause the same issues in the workplace, and it's always the boss's fault. There are a lot of bad bosses out there. But, but if you do that enough, you've got to start saying, mm, what's the same thread here? Number six and the last one, we move from stingy and generalized giving to radical and personal generosity. We come to see that the resources I have are not merely for my use, but for the needs of this very room, not just for my secure future, but for the present needs and the lives of those around me. Basically, I can learn to sacrifice so that people in this room don't have to go without. That's what face-to-face community looks like. Tithing's amazing, giving, but what if someone can just raise their hand and say, I need this, and it's taken care of. And I've seen that in this community. I'm not shaming. I'm not saying we're not that. But I need to learn that better. I know there's people in this room that need to learn better. I want to commit to that way of being because I know there are seasons when I have needs. And I want to be able to, without shame or judgment, raise my hand and say, man, can, can we do this? Right? And that means resources, not just money, time, friendship, whatever else we give. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit garden.church.